Welcome to this NJ Spotlight Roundtable, Improving Energy Efficiency in New Jersey. This program was recorded Wednesday, June 5th, 2019 at the Hilton Garden Inn in Hamilton, New Jersey. Few disagree with the proposition that energy efficiency is a win-win-win for utilities, for their customers, and for the environment. And yet, increasing energy efficiency in New Jersey is proving to be a challenge. Why is New Jersey, once a leader in energy conservation, now in the middle of the pack among states in convincing customers to use less electricity and natural gas? The conservation incentives are clear. Customers save money, utilities purchase less fuel, and pollution levels harmful to the public that contribute to climate change are reduced. A new state law aims to spur greater energy conservation in New Jersey by putting the onus on the state's electric and gas utilities. Is that the right model? How should we best guide the state's energy efficiency practices? What regulatory changes are needed to improve New Jersey's conservation efforts? We'll find out more during this NJ Spotlight Roundtable. Now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, the founding editor of NJ Spotlight, is opening today's program. Good morning, everyone. There we go. And welcome. Uh, my name is John Mooney. I'm the founding editor of uh, NJ Spotlight, and um, really thrilled to be here um, for what is closing in. Steve, I don't know if we're keeping track anymore, but uh, closing in on 100 of uh, these roundtable events in our nine-year uh, history. We just celebrated our ninth birthday uh, in early May. Yay for us. Um, made it that long. Um, and um, really, a uh, good number of those have been um, around energy issues and, and always uh, really well attended. I don't know what it is about you energy folks, but um, you like your conferences. And um, I really uh, appreciate your support and, and joining us today. Um, as I've often, often said about these events, um, really important to our public mission uh, in New Jersey to bring folks together and, um, and have these discussions live. As I often say, we, we have a lot of chatter online um, and back and forth, some of it civil, some of it not. Uh, and I think getting folks in the room uh, talking about these issues and, and talking with each other is a really important part of, of the public discourse. And, and so we're really proud of that. Of course, we can't do it without your support. Um, we are a nonprofit and, and certainly rely on, on the support of our members and, and donors and certainly uh, come to our site or come over to me on the side and we'll, we'll log you into our site and there's plenty of opportunities to donate. We also can't do these events without um, support from sponsors. Um, literally, uh, they make it possible for these to be free. You all go to a lot of events where you have to pay tickets, ticket prices. Uh, all of our events are free. Uh, and um, we think that's important, and, uh, you know, makes it as accessible as possible to the public. And we couldn't do that without uh, sponsorships. And I'd like to introduce Steve Shallot to say a few words of this, uh, about the sponsors uh, who are speaking or who are supporting us today, and then we can get the show going. Thank you, John. Um, some people are wondering about the Wi-Fi, uh, so I have a code should you want to get online. Um, there's going to be a box that pops up, and you're going to choose the coupon promo code option. And then the code is 
2019, Hilton 130. With a capital H. 2019, capital H Hilton 130. But more importantly, of course, we'd like to thank our sponsors. John said that we cannot do this without the support. That is absolutely true. And um, today we've got two, two sponsors um, whom we would like to thank specifically and say a few words on behalf of. Um, firstly, PSE&G, which is the largest provider of gas and electric service in New Jersey, serving 2.2 million electric and 1.8 million gas customers in more than 300 urban, suburban, and rural communities, including the state's largest cities. PSE&G's energy efficiency programs have saved customers $240 million since 2009 and avoided emissions that are the equivalent of taking 30,000 cars off the road per year. The utility also develops solar systems on landfills and brownfields and offers energy efficiency programs for multifamily buildings, hospitals, small businesses, government facilities, and nonprofit organizations. So thank you very much to PSC&G. Sponsoring also, and our thanks go to Gable Associates, which is a specialized energy, environmental, and public utility consulting firm with active participation in New Jersey marketplaces policy and regulatory issues for over 25 years. They have conducted hundreds of transactions in retail and wholesale energy markets, including support for over 250 energy efficiency and renewable energy projects. Gable Associates has unique and specific expertise and analytical capabilities on energy efficiency matters and frequently provides detailed program design, cost benefit modeling, an expert testimony. So thanks again to Gable Associates and PSE&G. And uh, back to John to introduce our keynote. Thank you. I also, um, before I introduce our keynote, I think I saw Governor uh, Florio here. It's, there you are. Welcome. Always a pleasure. Uh, I'd like to introduce Neil Elliott, um, Senior Director of Research for the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, is going to be speaking uh, with us today about this issue of uh, energy efficiency and, and its role and, and its importance in the, in the entire energy strategy. Uh, Neil is an internationally recognized expert and author among many topics on energy efficiency programs and policies, analysis of energy efficiency in energy markets, electric motor systems, and clean distributed energy. Uh, he joined ACEE in 1993, and prior to that, he was an adjunct associate professor at Duke University, as well as a senior engineering project manager at the uh, North Carolina Alternative Energy Corporation, now called uh, Advanced Energy, where he was founding director of their industrial energy lab. Um, he was a Dean's Fellow, received his PhD from Duke University, uh, and also a registered professional engineer in uh, North Carolina with six pack. Uh, I'm sorry, six patents in the area of thermal storage and produce processing. And I don't know how many people out there have any patents. I don't, but so he's got six. And I always admire folks who have any patents to their name. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Neil Elliott. Welcome. Yeah, we're, 
we're we're going to need to lower this a little bit in order for me to um, actually be able to speak into the mic. I'm not quite as tall as uh, my colleague there. Uh, thank you so much, and I'm uh, really excited to see everybody here. It's great to be up here in the Garden State. Uh, this is, I think, a unique time for New Jersey. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunities and I think the time is right for energy efficiency uh, here in the state. Um, if we could move to the first slide, please. So uh, how many people in the audience know who ACEEE is? Oh, wow. Okay, I'm impressed. So I'll, I'll keep this short. Um, we're getting ready to celebrate our 40th anniversary next year. We're a uh, nonprofit. We're based in Washington, D.C., but we've got staff uh, spread pretty much across the entire country. We work at the local, state, federal, and international level on energy efficiency policies, programs, and technologies. And we cover pretty much everything from uh, buildings through industry, agriculture, transportation. <clears throat> They're very multidisciplinary, so we've actually got uh, uh, PhDs in mathematics, uh, social sciences, psychology. Uh, you wouldn't believe it, but psychology and energy efficiency are very importantly linked, um, as well as uh, engineers, mathematicians, and uh, various policy folks out there. Um, so, really excited to have the opportunity to come here to New Jersey and talk about energy efficiency. And I thought we would start with a look at how energy is being used in New Jersey. Um, so if you'll take a look up in the upper right-hand corner, uh, that gives you an idea of the uh, breakdown of energy uh, that is being consumed in the state. Um, what you'll see immediately is that petroleum is one of the largest consuming or one of the largest fuels used in the state of uh, New Jersey. And uh, it, so that is actually linked with the bottom uh, right chart, which looks at the sectors. And what you see is almost half of the energy consumed in New Jersey is related to transportation. And that is actually, um, you're one of the more transportation uh, dependent uh, consuming uh, states in the country. I know a lot of you are really interested in the electric power sector. And so on the right, you see the utility mix there. Um, New Jersey is very heavily dependent on both nuclear and natural gas for the utility mix uh, in the state. And um, that is somewhat of an unusual mix in that there's so much nuclear in that uh, uh, distribution there. If we can go to the next slide, um, I know the governor has now become much more concerned, as many of you are, with climate change and climate emissions. So I wanted to take a look at where the emissions are coming from in New Jersey. And again, transportation is the dominant energy um, source for climate change, uh, GHG gases in the state of New Jersey. Um, obviously, you've got your buildings in there. Um, industry is a fairly modest amount in the mix. Um, in, uh, the residential commercial is fairly balanced between the two. If we can get the next slide. 
So why, what's the linkage between energy efficiency and climate change? And I think that's one of those things that a lot of people don't understand. This is becoming more of a topic in Washington right now. The Green New Deal is, um, shall we say, the topic du jour. Um, I think it would be, uh, we, I was at a symposium yesterday and we got into the entire argument about what's the relationship between climate response and energy efficiency. And what this gra uh, graph, which came from my colleagues at Natural Resources Defense Council shows is energy efficiency is that first tranche that you go for out there. It's the least cost, it's easiest accessible. We know how to do that. So that's the blue bar there that gets you down. You then layer on top of that the renewables, and then there's a series of other technologies in there, um, things like carbon capture and storage, uh, shift to hydrogen, things like that. We anticipate across the country, we're going to see some retirements of the nuclear power, and many of those, at least at this point, are probably not going to be replaced in the marketplace. And so we're going to see a decrement, an increase in uh, CO2 emissions as that capacity gets retired. But what you're seeing there is, we'll call it in 2050, nominally half of the carbon reduction we need to reach Paris is available from energy efficiency. So what else does energy efficiency do? And I think that's an important point for us to always keep in mind. We tend to focus on the bill savings for customers as the benefits from energy efficiency. The reality is there are a lot of other benefits that go with that. One of the ones from the public sector, public good perspective, is health and the environment. And energy efficiency can be a critically and important in terms of improving the well-being of uh, folks. Um, as you see here, New Jersey is one of the, or uh, is one of the states that is uniquely positioned that could significantly benefit from energy efficiency policies reducing uh, emissions that contribute to ambient air quality challenges in the, uh, in the state. And those could have tangible health outcome benefits to consumers. So ACEEE does and has for, this will be our, I think, 14th year this year, uh, been doing a state scorecard where we rate the states on energy efficiency policies. Um, it'd be nice if they had been the exact same scorecard for all these years. The reality is energy efficiency policies evolve, new opportunities are presented as we learn, and so we're constantly changing. Want to call out, though, the fact that last year, uh, while New Jersey was 18th, it's now the most improved state. And that is in large part as a result of legislation that was passed last year. The state of New Jersey, we feel, is poised to be able to move up in those rankings dramatically. I was talking to several of the folks from the BPU before. I think there's some real opportunities. And the next slide shows you how you compare with other states in the region. And as you'll note, you're right in there with your colleagues across the border there in Pennsylvania. 
Um, unfortunately, not up at the top with uh, some of your colleagues uh, up there in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York. Now, if we break that down a little bit and look at where those opportunities are, um, first thing is you're already doing a fairly decent job on building codes. There's always more you can do on building codes. Um, there are lots of opportunities. You're also doing a fair amount of transportation, which I'm sure is reflected by the fact that the, uh, the state is so transportation focused in terms of energy consumption. One of the biggest opportunities, though, from our scorecard perspective is in the utility program space, the first bar over on, the, uh, on your little left. Um, and I know that's going to be a lot of the discussion today is how do we take the new legislation that has been signed into law and implement that. If I can get the next slide. So, um, let me see what I said on this slide. So we've set targets for gas and electricity, and uh, so taking a look at that, the question is, what do we need to do in order to implement that? And I know there'll be a lot of discussion about that as we go forward. Um, we think there's some real opportunities for the state to step up. There's been a period of, we'll call it eight years, in which not a lot got done. Now's the time to really turbocharge everything and begin to think about putting those uh, structures back in place, beginning to put the regulatory frameworks in place, getting the opportunities for public engagement. So these are some of the big opportunities. And get the next slide. One of the disadvantages not being able to see my slides, I need my keys. But um, transportation, what can be done in the transportation space? Um, certainly there are uh, significant opportunities. Uh, that's perfect. And I can actually see my slide that I wrote. Um, so, you know, you're one of the states that is basically committed to the China, uh, I mean, to the California uh, vehicle standards. You're part of the discussions on TCI. We think that's going to be important. How many people know what TCI is? Ooh, okay. Um, uh, so, the TCI is Transportation Climate Initiative, and this is sort of Reggie for the transportation sector out there. And we think that's going to be a really important complement to what is currently taking place um, with Reggie in terms of decarbonizing the uh, utility sector. So, what are the other opportunities? Well, um, it'd be great if the state set some greenhouse gas reduction targets for transportation because it is such a huge part of your environmental footprint. A big chunk of that is actually in the freight space. So begin to think about um, planning for freight. And we see some states, New Jersey among them, that are already starting to think about and address the uh, transportation space with respect to freight. And we think that would be an important opportunity. Um, looking at intermodality, you're a major port state, and that's an important issue. So begin to look at um, a multimodal, intermodal lens uh, through the FAST Act. You can get the next one. So 
one of the big environmental footprints for the state is the um, Port uh, Authority of New Jersey and New York. And one of the things that is important to look at is what do you do about that huge economic as well as environmental impact there? So one of the things you need to do is start to think about how do you redesign things there? How do you redesign port side handling? Do we move to electrification of uh, port side equipment? Looking at efficiencies. But I think it's also looking at the freight modalities. Um, I have down here a paper that was presented that's being uh, considered uh, on inland ports. And the idea here is to provide a freight bridge from the port of New Jersey and New York and connect that to other um, transportation hubs so that you aren't basically getting the vehicle miles traveled with trucks and you're transferring that over into the freight sector. And uh, the projections are that you could cut 100,000 um, miles uh, of truck traffic a day by establishing a port bridge up to Albany. So these are things that we can begin to think about for the state. Oh, there we go. Oh, one more. There we go. Whoa. <laughs> um, the other thing to think about, and I think this is always an important one, and it's one that we see at least across the country driving more uh, issues, and that is the impacts of energy on equity. Um, what we see in low-income households is that they experience a bigger part of their um, annual uh, or monthly household budget going to energy. And that can make challenges for them, uh, sometimes referred to as energy insecurity. If we look at the state of New Jersey, a quarter of the population of the state of New Jersey is in that low and moderate income where they're uh, subject to uh, those energy burdens. And so if we look at um, energy burdens, this is the idea of how much of the household monthly income is going to cover the energy bills. And in this case, we're excluding transportation Generally, if it's more than 6%, it's considered to be a high burden. Um, and these have you know, physical, economic concerns. They also have health in outcomes, which are an important issue. So how do you address a housing stock that is aging, that is inefficient, that is unhealthy? How do you transform that? And um, we've spent a lot of time talking about it. Problem is, it requires a lot of money, requires a lot of investment, but you can reap major savings. On the health outcome side, if we can address in a low-income household with an asthmatic child, if we can address those um, household income, in, uh, household energy issues, we can probably we may end up needing to spend ten to fifteen thousand dollars on the household. On the other hand, we can avoid two hospitalizations for asthma a year at $30,000 a pop. And so there's a really an important opportunity for both economic cost savings as well as health benefits. Low income is a major issue 
for the uh, uh, for many of the cities out there, we see uh, low income populations at around 7.2 percent. Remember, six is our threshold for burdened for low income. However, remember that a quarter of the uh, a quarter of the or six percent of the population and a third of the state of New Jersey is rural, and what we see in those rural households is an in, uh, a low income burden that can be 9% or more. And so when we're trying to address regional issues for the folks in the northwest and southwest parts of the state, um, looking at energy efficiency is important. One of the things that we'll say about rural, um, it may be only 6% of the population, but they have a disproportionate power in the legislature, particularly in the Senate, because of the structure. And so addressing those is both a political reality to taking care of the issues in the state, as well as a what we think of as an opportunity to address some equity issues out there. Unfortunately, addressing those are different than when you're going to be addressing issues, say, like you would see in Trenton, for example. You have lower density, you have uh, other challenges. Um, but rural is an important issue, and the challenges for energy efficiency in rural communities for households and small businesses is greater. So what are the conclusions? Um, in the state of New Jersey, carbon emissions, energy use is dominated by transportation. So you need to think about transportation. TCI is a good opportunity. Some of the freight intermodality uh, proposals that are being considered are a good start. Um, this is something that it's going to be a long challenge, and it's new policies to think about, but we would certainly encourage you to think about them. The state remains very dependent on natural gas and nuclear power uh, and petroleum uh, to meet its energy needs. I would say, looking over the years, New Jersey has fallen behind other states in the reason, and we can talk about on the panel why that's happened. But I think a concerted effort to implement the legislation can really help the state reassert its leadership in the region, much as you did last year, moving in as the most approved state. And then finally, energy efficiency will bring with it environmental health and economic benefits that uh, can uh, contribute to addressing environmental and equity issues, and we should look at implementing those. So with that, uh, thank you very much and uh, look forward to the discussion and uh, turn it back over. Thank you, Neil. If the panelists wanna come up and join us, you know who you are. Who? A little cleanup, yep. a little spillage. Okay. Couple logistics. Um, we, as many of you know, um, encourage questions coming from the audience, and there are uh, index cards on your on your tables. Um, if you have a question that you'd like to be incorporated into the discussion, uh, fill out an index card, wave it. We'll be walking around. Staff will be walking around the outskirts of the room wave it, catch our eye, 
and uh, we'll bring it up, um, we'll, we'll get it from you and bring it up to the moderator and, and he'll do the best he can to uh, include those in, in, as part of the discussion, recognize that it's often many more questions than, than time and so we likely not to get to every, every one of them but uh, he'll do his best. Uh, there's also on your uh, tables surveys and um, that we ask you to fill out at the end of the event and, and leave on the tables or, or at the front table really important for us. Even though we've done close to 100 of these things, we always can get better, and we really appreciate the feedback. It, it means a lot, uh, and believe me, it's well taken and, and, and uh, incorporated into future events. So uh, I'd like to get the discussion going, and I'd like to introduce Tom Johnson, one of the co-founders of NJ Spotlight uh, nine years ago. He and I had worked together at uh, Newark Star Ledger, and and took on this crazy idea of starting a news site and uh, hasn't been the same since. Um, but Tom, as you all know, who follow his coverage in, on, on the site, um, knows these issues as well as anyone in the state. And uh, really, um, you know, a, a, a real treasure for not just NJ Spotlight, but I, I would say for New Jersey as a whole. So without further ado, Tom Johnson. Thanks, John, and uh, thank you, Neil. You, that was a, it was a fabulous keynote and raised a lot of questions. Uh, before we start, I just want to also note, uh, welcome uh, Commissioner, BPU Commissioner Diane Solomon here. Thanks for coming, <laughs> Commissioner. Okay, we got a lot of topics to cover, so, um, We'll start off with Dave Daly. Uh, he's president and COO of uh, Public Service Electric and Gas, which enthusiastically supports energy efficiency and has been a panelist several times for us and has always has a lot to say and educate. Dave. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, everybody. And it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, Certainly, you know, the industry is undergoing a significant transformation and in many ways it is a critical moment for the state of New Jersey. Uh, the policies, objectives of the state are very clear. Whether or not they're outlined in the Clean Energy Act, the New Jersey Global Warming Response Act, or the goals of the EMP, uh, they're very clear. Reduce energy usage, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and grow the clean energy, green economy. And so PSENG is very much aligned with that and has responded to that challenge. We have put together a program that we call our Clean Energy Future Program. At the heart of it is an energy efficiency program. It also includes electric vehicles, energy storage, and advanced metering infrastructure. But the state's goals and our clean energy program, particularly the energy efficiency program, uh, will clearly move New Jersey to its rightful place at the top nationally and, be, and will move us to become a national leader. You heard or saw in Neil's presentation that we're not there at this point in time. We have established policies and legislation that will get us there. And we're excited about getting moving and getting to that spot because the benefits are tremendous. Uh, we call it a triple win, 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 win. Number one, it lowers costs, it lowers our customers' bills. PSE&G's estimates of the impact of the energy efficiency program 
which would achieve the savings targets that are identified in the legislation, would save participating customers over the life of these programs $5.7 billion. And as wholesale prices dropped, all customers would also save, not just the participants. So it's a tremendous impact on the customer's bill. Secondly, the green energy economy. With all of that uh, kilowatt hours, all those kilowatt hours, all those therms not being used, our estimates 40 billion kilowatt hours, 675 million therms not being used, there's less, less fossil fuel in the mix. And there are significant reductions in greenhouse emissions, 24 million tons of carbon. Very, very significant reductions in sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide. And then thirdly, the green energy economy. Our estimate is that just in our program, that we would grow from today implementing our programs with about 300 uh, workers, FTEs, that we would grow to create 5,000 new jobs if we implemented the programs consistent with the act. These are tremendous jobs, high quality, clean energy jobs that don't exist today across all businesses. Energy efficiency installation contractors, builders, developers, plumbers, electricians, all kinds of energy efficiency service providers. So it's a triple win, these programs. It moves us to where we want to be statewide. It lowers bills. It cleans the environment. It creates quality jobs. And these are cost-effective programs, as Neil said. They pay for themselves. So with regard to PSE&G, we also have a view on it that it's very, very consistent, not just with state policy, but also with what our customers are telling us. Our customers tell us, number one, is lower my bill. And they're also telling us that they want clean energy. So this program has a fourth win in there. Call it a quadruple win for the state and for our customers. So I think the biggest question we have today, and what this panel discussion really should be focusing on, is the challenge of how we begin to implement these programs and how we accelerate the delivery of these benefits to our customers as quickly as possible. We do have, and we all know, that there are details in the act to be worked out. The QPIs, the performance measures, the incentive mechanisms, so on. And the BPU and staff are very, very diligently working on those things. The challenge for us, though, as Neil said, is that these benefits are sitting there at the gate. How do we implement them at the same time in parallel with working through these details that, yes, do need to be worked out? We need to work in parallel paths. And the time is right for collaboration between the utilities, with BPU staff, with rate council, and with a wide, wide range of stakeholders that support these programs for obvious reasons. Businesses, environmental groups, and so on. The time is right for collaboration, how we move forward in parallel, implement these programs, start to deliver these benefits in parallel with working out these details. So we have some ideas about how to do that and how that collaborative process would work, and we're very excited about getting started on all of it. So I'll leave it for there for now, Tom. Thanks very much. <coughs> very happy to be here this morning, everybody. Thanks, Dave. Uh, next up, we'll uh, uh, introduce uh, Isaac Gable-Frank. He's the Vice President of Gable Associates. Um, 
uh, uh, we're glad to have him here, and he's been studying this topic for as long as he's been at Gable Associates. Isaac? Yep. Isaac? Thank you, thank you. Uh, so first, I want to thank you, Tom, John, Steve, for putting this on, and the other panelists. Honored to be up here with you. Um, like Dave said, we're at a crossroads here. So this is kind of the future of New Jersey's energy efficiency life is being figured out right now. And at this fork, we can look to the right. I'm going to call that the right path. And that's going to bring us to improved efficiency savings. It's going to bring us to an improved environment. It's going to bring us to a vibrant new economy. And to the left, the other fork in the road is going to bring us back to kind of where we've been the past 10 years, the starts and stops of trying to figure out where and how New Jersey should proceed with energy efficiency. So this is taking place at the perfect time, Tom. And I'm, I'm really excited to kind of talk about this and we can really focus in on the big issues that New Jersey's facing right now. And hopefully this panel can bring us there. There's three topics I want to riff on a little. Um, and Neil and, and Dave kind of cued the first one up already, which is the environment and emissions. So uh, obviously I don't think anyone in this room debates that if you reduce energy usage, you're going to reduce emissions, and, and there's some sort of benefit to that. The question is, how do you value those benefits? Um, there's a lot of types of benefits that at least I and I think many people, experts, scientists, can kind of start to quantify and what those mean. You know, improved health benefits, reduction in mortality, uh, increased productivity, um, you know, reduction in the climate change that has caused superstorms like Sandy in New Jersey that have kind of devastated different parts of New Jersey and the country. Um, but putting a value to that's extremely important. I think the governor has recognized that climate change is a big issue. He's released, I think, three or four executive orders talking to that issue. Um, so, you know, aligning the governor's policy and the protocols that are used in, in kind of evaluating energy efficiency with these goals is, is vitally important to making sure that we achieve the energy efficiency goals in the act and making sure that we don't underbuild energy efficiency in the state and lose out on the opportunity for all these jobs and environmental savings and savings for customers in New Jersey, you know, to their bottom lines. So uh, I just want to name, there's at least two studies out there that kind of talk about these type of issues. Um, they're both uh, peer-reviewed studies. They've kind of been, uh, you know, worked on by hundreds of scientists to figure these values out. The first is the interagency working group. That's a study that looks at the cost of carbon, and it figures out, you know, um, on a dollar per ton basis, what some of these actual costs are. There's also a study from EPA, which interestingly was originally released in 2013 under the Obama administration, has been re-released in 2018 under the Trump administration with largely the same findings, which kind of support that, you know, there is real damage that can be done here. Both these studies say, these damages are significant. Both of them say that their findings are conservative. So this is definitely something that we need to make sure we incorporate into our process as we figure out um, what energy efficiency and how we bring energy efficiency into our economy. Um, second, I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, it, it's almost a program design issue. So it's making sure that programs are easy to use. We talk a lot about who should administer programs and how they should be administered. But I, I want to look at the other side of the equation a little, which is, at the end of the day, customers are the ones participating in these programs. And they need to be able to have programs that, A, they understand, and B, aren't overly time consuming or complicated that they can't get into them. 
everyone here is an energy expert, but if you think about like a business administrator of a school, they're an expert at administering the business of a school. They don't necessarily have time to kind of work through all the intricacies of, of what a program or how many programs work and how to get rebates. So these programs need to be designed in a way to make it easy for them. And you know, there's a couple different types of things you can do to do that. You can think about um, maybe the person administering these programs is someone they know already or someone that they trust in the energy industry or someone that they have a billing relationship with so they can easily onboard on you know, on-bill financing and on-bill repayments to make this all happen. Those are different types of tools. You know, maybe this person is someone who is already on site when they're doing new construction or putting equipment in. So uh, to get on this a little, and I'm sure we'll talk more later on it, to me a utility seems like a kind of perfect fit for those things. They already have this relationship. They're already billing with the customer. They can easily kind of bring these things into the fold and make it easy for people as they um, kind of join these programs so that they can easily achieve savings. Um, and third and lastly, uh, I'll talk quickly on this, is decoupling. I'm sure we're going to talk on this more. Uh, it's kind of gotten a bad rap. I'm not totally sure why. It may just be that it sounds like you're tearing a couple apart, you're decoupling something. I, I don't really know. Uh, when I think about decoupling, to me it's actually a, a hedge for customers against their utility costs. On the supply side, customers are kind of hedged a little bit. We have BGS pricing where we get pricing and, and it protects from fluctuations in the market. There isn't any of that on the distribution side. And, and to me, decoupling does that because it gives a fixed known value that customers are going to pay each year. And if utilities overcollect, they get it back. And if they undercollect, they pay a little more each year, uh, the next year. But what it does is it makes it so customers can look and understand their bills and know that there's not going to be major fluctuations because they know the value that's going to be in that. Uh, the Clean Energy Act allows for utilities to collect their lost revenues. So if it's not through this mechanism, it's going to be through something that's through some sort of annual lost revenue recovery filing. There's going to be you know, uh, evidentiary hearings. We're going to go through a big process with BPU and rate council. So, you know, the other thing is there's symmetry in, in decoupling where both sides kind of level out at the right value. In, in, in this other type of method, it's a one-way street. So utilities will file, obviously, if they believe they've lost revenues. They won't file if they don't. So protecting customers, to me, is a big thing. And that's something that I think uh, decoupling does. And it also kind of frees up some of the administrative burdens that go along with having to file these things every year. BPU and rate council can focus their resources on other important issues that are going to be facing the state. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking more about that and on kind of all the other issues. So I'll stop there. But really excited to be on this panel and hoping to get some good questions. All right, I'm sure you're going to have plenty, uh, Isaac. Uh, next up, we have Julian Boggs. He's policy director of the Keystone Energy Alliance. And he's, uh, he's been following what's been happening in Pennsylvania, which is about equal to New Jersey, according to Neil's uh, charts. Um, so what are they doing right, and what are they doing wrong, Julian? For, for now. <laughs> uh, so I am the policy director at the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance. We were founded in 2008 uh, by energy efficiency companies, largely uh, companies who work with utilities to implement energy efficiency programs. 
so we have around now 10 years of experience under Act 129, uh, which is Pennsylvania's energy efficiency resource standard. Uh, so you saw in Neil's chart, we are now tied with Pennsylvania. Uh, Pennsylvania is tied with New Jersey uh, in terms of the utility efficiency scorecard. I, I, I apologize, I might switch back and forth between Pennsylvania and New Jersey terminology. Our BPU is the PUC, our rate council is the consumer advocate, so I'll try to keep things New Jersey, but uh, apologize in advance. Uh, and so I wanna talk just a little bit about what we've learned through Act 129 uh, over the last 10 years and how that might inform uh, New Jersey as you move forward with the New Jersey uh, Energy Master Plan. Uh, I think there is potential, as has been previously stated, for New Jersey to really shoot ahead. But I think given the constraints that Pennsylvania is under and given the political situation that's, that it's under, I think we've done really well with implementation, um, despite some of the barriers that are in the law. And I'll, I'll talk about that as well. Um, but just a, a quick review of how Act 129, which is our uh, energy efficiency resource standard, is structured. Uh, it sets targets for each of the electric distribution companies. Uh, seven in all, uh, four of those are first energy subsidiaries, so you could also consider that to be four. Um, we do not have targets for gas utilities, so that's already uh, a, a way that New Jersey is in front of us. Um, those targets are set by the Utility Commission after a potential study done with uh, input from all the stakeholders. Um, uh, however, the targets are uh, fit under a budget, uh, statutory budget, budget cap for the entire program. Uh, it's around $240 million a year. Uh, and so we don't have any general system benefit charge. The utility comes up with its plan to meet its targets. Uh, under, the, under its budget cap and meeting a strict TRC, uh, total resource cost test, uh, and then recovers that cost from ratepayers directly through an automatic uh, adjustable rate mechanism. So we have what I would think of as a utility-driven model, where utilities are in the driver's seat under the constraints of the legal framework set by the law. I think there are some pluses and minuses um, from this utility-driven uh, business model, especially as we have it set up in Pennsylvania. Uh, I think utilities are really well positioned to deliver savings. Nobody knows their customers like PSE&G or the, or the uh, uh, utilities in Pennsylvania. And I think the most important thing, and. Um, and this is a, a key concept around energy efficiency that I think folks in this room maybe can wrap their heads around, but isn't widely understand, understood uh, in the broader public or even in the broader policy making, rate making resources, is when you allow utilities to procure energy efficiency, they begin to think of energy efficiency as a resource. One of Neil's conferences that he put on the, um, uh, slide there at the end, the annual ACEEE conference is energy, energy efficiency as a resource, right? We, we noted the, the block that energy efficiency can uh, make up, the, the slice of the pie when you're, we're looking at our overall climate targets and how we get there. But, but we know energy efficiency isn't, it isn't nuclear energy or it isn't, it's, you know, they're not electrons that are being produced, they're electrons that are being saved. And so it can get a little bit tricky in the implementation uh, 
of, of, of how exactly we procure energy efficiency as a, as a resource, but allowing utilities to do that and setting up energy efficiency so that it may compete on an equal playing field with uh, traditional resources and even new technologies uh, to generate electricity is, is, is incredibly important for realizing the potential of energy efficiency. Um, so treating energy efficiency as a resource in all of this is really important and I think it's something that we, we start to do in Pennsylvania and I think um, I would encourage folks in New Jersey to be thinking about as you move forward all the time. This, the third advantage I think of, of a system that um, really puts utilities in charge of uh, their own energy efficiency spending uh, is a little bit more real politic, but, but it is important. Um, and is that is that uh, two years ago in Pennsylvania, we had a budget gap of about a billion dollars and the state legislature was understandably looking for every dollar it could find in any program. But our, util our, our energy efficiency money was safe <laughs> because it was in the bank accounts of the utilities. And I think as, just as the, the fact of the matter is in, if, if you're looking for a consistent delivery of energy efficiency programs, we've seen in other states that have that money put in state budgets like Connecticut and others across the, across the region, uh, that money can get rated when times are tough. Um, and energy efficiency, if you're gonna treat energy efficiency as a resource to be procured, uh, it needs to be available and those resources need to be available, um, not funneled through a, a, a state government general fund. Uh, but there are a lot of things that you need in place in order for this model to work. Uh, some of these we have in Pennsylvania, some of these we're just getting started with, some of these we don't have. The f one of the key things is the business model has to be aligned. So we talked about decoupling. Uh, performance incentives are another opportunity. If you are making an investment in energy efficiency as a resource, that investment needs to be a good investment. Other capital investments, whether they be uh, on the generation side through a new power plant or on the distribution side through a substation transmission, come with a rate of return. Come with capital investment. You put a billion dollars in, you know what you're gonna get back and you know your, your rate of return. Uh, and, and those are the types of investments that it's easy to raise money for um, and that utilities are comfortable and other energy companies are, are comfortable with making. Uh, you Energy efficiency needs to come with a financial incentive if we're going to really unleash the potential of the utility business model here. Um, so that's why the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance has um, long supported uh, performance incentives for utilities along with the coupling. There was a really good ACEEE report about a year ago on utility energy efficiency incentives and decoupling, uh, looking at all the states that employ both. Only around 27 states have mandatory energy efficiency resource standards. Uh, and a, about half of those also have decoupling and performance incentives. And the ones that have decoupling uh, exceed the performance of the ones who don't in their energy efficiency programs by about 50% on average. Uh, so it makes a really big difference when you're talking about your ability to um, achieve deep savings. Uh, the, the second piece is that we really need the room to make big investments. I think this is an area where New Jersey can, has the potential to be way ahead of Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, we're locked in uh, at that $240 million budget cap, and, and we actually never even spend all of that money uh, because of the conservative formulas we use to set our targets. Um, 
And so there is a lot of cost-effective efficiency that we're leaving on the table uh, and that we're not allowed to unlock. So um, sort of certainly not having caps and, and making spending based on what's cost-effective for, for customers is really important. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is really valuing um, is, is, is really valuing energy efficiency for the, the entire value, not just the electricity savings. Uh, of course, a lot of energy efficiency measures save gas, save other utilities, and they, as Neil pointed out, deliver all of these holistic uh, benefits. Pennsylvania was at the top of the chart above New Jersey, but in New Jersey still, as he pointed out, there's huge health benefits that come with energy efficiency. So those should be valued as we're looking at energy efficiency investments to take full advantage. Um, that's all I'll say for now. Uh, the last thing I'll just plug is that I mentioned that I'm with the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance. Uh, when the New Jersey Energy, uh, Energy Master Plan passed, many of our companies and businesses started to look over here and formed a new group, the Energy Efficiency Alliance of New Jersey. Uh, and we're, we've been working in the state for a while, but we're formally launching today. Uh, and so I invite everybody to, to join us for brunch afterwards. And that's all for now. Thanks a lot. Uh, next up is Stephanie Brandt. Everybody here knows her. She's director of the Division Rate Council. She's been there uh, a few years and done a fabulous job. Stephanie. Thanks, Tom. Um, so I'm going to pretty much dispense with what I was planning on saying, since it turns out I'm the only person on this panel that is not here, does not work for the utilities and not represent the utilities. But I, I, I do want to, um, yes, you, I know that, You're, that's true. Um, I do want to uh, point out a few things. First of all, we totally agree that energy efficiency is a terrific resource. It's probably the best gen source of, um, I'm going to say, generation or megawatts, whatever you, you choose to call it. No question about that. We're big supporters of it. Um, but there, there obviously needs to be a balance. Just, just by way of, of background, so for those of you who don't know, we used to have a system where the utilities were in, in charge of uh, doing energy efficiency. We had that. And it was, a, it was a failure. And that's what led to the creation of the Office of Clean Energy at the BPU. So we've been there. We've done that. And so we're not, I don't think we're, we're, it would be a good idea to go back and, and simply repeat the same mistake twice. It's the definition of insanity. I, I do it very often. But um, <laughs> I think what we need to do is improve upon the failures of the past and learn from them and try to do better. Um, and I do think there's a, definitely a role for the utilities in energy efficiency. But to simply have them as the sole um, provider of energy efficiency. First of all, it monopolizes a competitive industry, which is, it may lead to, to some jobs, but it's also going to lead to the loss of some jobs. And it's not necessarily cheaper when you talk about the fact that you're going to be adding a, a profit for the utilities um, onto everything, that, every dollar that you spend. And that's a very, and, and, and I'm going to answer Isaac's question too as to why we don't have decoupling in New Jersey. It's because we made a choice. The, the legislature made a choice back um, when, I, when I first came into this job that instead we were going to allow utilities to earn on their energy efficiency investments. New Jersey is one of only four states in the country that allows the utilities to earn on their energy efficiency and renewable energy investments. And they get contemporaneous recovery at their full weighted average cost of capital. It's a great deal. 
and and that's why I, and 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 it's working actually. We are we do see a, a, a terrific number of our utilities are investing. Not everybody, unfortunately, but certainly PSENG has some existing programs that are working great, and they're earning money on it, and they're doing a great job at it. There's an incentive there for them to do it. But if you were to allow them to earn on their investments, get performance incentives, and uh, recover all lost revenues, you are going to be paying them more than 100% of their investment. And we don't have the money to do that. I was, I, I was in this room, I don't know how long ago, but we were talking about solar and how we need to invest in solar. I've been in similar rooms talking about wind and how we need to invest in wind, talking about electric vehicles, how we need to invest in, in electric vehicles. And we could look at this as a fork in the road and pick one and go that way, but the fact is we want to do it all. And I think I think we have the, the ability to do it all if we don't spend more than we need to on any one of those paths. So what we need to do um, is uh, do this smartly. We need to invest in energy efficiency. We need to ramp up our energy efficiency programs and spending, but we need to do it in a way that does not simply overcompensate the utilities for doing it, but also considers the low and moderate income uh, uh, people that are energy burdened at this point. Um, I'm gonna uh, actually pick up on, on, on something that David said that I agree with completely, which is that this needs to be a collaborative process. And I think that's the best way for us to do it smartly. Um, I have to say that um, the, the whole process we had with the optimal study in the last several weeks was anything but optimal. Um, we all received the study, I don't know, I think it was on a Friday afternoon, a Thursday afternoon after five o'clock, and we had till the following Wednesday to put in our comments. The board heard it a few days later, and none of the comments were reflected in anything that was done. It almost felt a little bit, at least to me, like we were, we were submitting comments so that they would just, you know, can say they took comments. Um, and that's, that's not the kind of collaborative process I think that we need. I think we do need, a, we need to sit down with the utilities, we need to sit down with, with energy efficiency advocates, uh, advocates, we need to sit down with ACEEE, which we did last week and it was, it was an eye opener for us. Um, and we need to all collaboratively work together to figure out where do we need the utilities to step in? Where, what are the things that they can do that the Office of Clean Energy can't do? Where is it better off, are we better off having the Office of Clean Energy doing the work at a, at a lower price? Where will the private sector step in? Um, and, and by that I mean not the utilities, I realize they are the private sector, but they're regulated monopolies. Um, where will, where will you know, your, your, your local um, uh, plumbers and, and carpenters and whoever step in and, and do the work? How, is there a way to, to tap into that resource other than having them simply hired by the utilities where you then layer another level of profit over the, over the, the cost that, that uh, we will incur? There are ways to do these things, that, but they're better off, we're better off doing it if we work collaboratively to try to sit down and figure out who does what and not simply, we, you know, we could hand $10 billion to PSE&G. I bet they would do a great job. I'm not, I don't doubt that. But we might have been able to do that same work for $5 billion and spend the other $5 billion on solar, wind, electric vehicles or whatever. If we waste money now, we're not gonna achieve our goals. And if we take the easy route by just handing it over and saying, oh, they'll do it, and if we just pay them enough, then we're not gonna get to where we need to go. 
And um, so I, I also, you know, and again, I, I do want to stress the process. I do think that we're at a point right now where there are so many things being done and there are so many deadlines that have to be met that we're, we're at risk of meeting deadlines at the expense of the quality of the work that we're doing. And, and, th and that would be a grave mistake. I really do think that would. Thank you, uh, Stephanie. Um, um, uh, it's been pointed out that uh, Commissioner Gordon is here. I'm sorry, I didn't see you. Uh, oh, there you are. Uh, welcome. All right, I guess uh, there's some people who would like to uh, respond to uh, what Stephanie said. I, I'll let uh, Dave go first. Okay. Um, so I think, you know, I came back to what I said earlier that, you know, the, the focus from my point of view is the savings and the benefits are there uh, across the number of areas. We all agree on those. The question is how do we start to implement and deliver these savings um, to our customers as quickly as possible and in a way that will actually achieve those levels of savings. And there were two, two items that were brought up that I think are very important aspects of how we deliver the programs. One having to do with, I'll call it roles and responsibilities between the utilities and certainly the Office of Clean Energy. And our view is that, um, you know, through a collaborative process, but our input to that process would be that we ought to execute a transition where the utilities are the sole provider of the services and that the Office of Clean Energy has a very important role um, as a regulator of governance and oversight, of audit, of measurement and verification, of administration of the QPIs and the incentive mechanisms. So this division of functions between governance and oversight, audit, et cetera, and operational execution we think is very important for three reasons. The first is that, uh, in all three of these, I should say, is, as we designed our programs, um, were designed around benchmarking analysis that we did where we looked across the industries of what was working and what was working best. And so our view on why we ought to have this division is based upon what we believe are the best practices that are out there. And there are three reasons. Number one, um, Isaac, I think, and Julian touched on it, is that the utility's best positioned to deliver the savings the, the, uh, in a quick, quickly and most effectively. They have the relationships, they have the expertise, they have the data, they have the processes such as on-bill financing. All of these things, uh, Isaac mentioned a little bit about um, executing the programs in the most seamless possible way. Secondly, is that I think it's what the Clean Energy Act envisioned. The act put the responsibility for achieving the savings on the utilities. The utilities are responsible for achieving those targets. And it is the utilities who are subject to penalties for not achieving them. And so I think secondly, it is consistent with what the act envisioned on who was responsible. And then thirdly, there are inherent inefficiencies in a government agency providing both functions of oversight and execution. And we do see it with, re with regard to the programs that the Office of Clean Energy does deliver. The, the, the office is staffed with dedicated professionals, very, very strong competencies, but they are somewhat handcuffed with inefficiencies associated with government on policies and procedures. For example, getting approvals for contracts and contract terms, making incentive payments that have to go through uh, Treasury, uh, 
um, and other types of inefficiencies. Uh, the, the Office of Clean Energy has, when you look at the results, I think because of these handcuffs, they do have challenges with regard to the delivery of these programs in terms of the cost per kilowatt saved or therm saved. And we do see that. When we look at benchmarking of the results, we do see that there are some challenges there. So I think for, the th for those three reasons, that the utilities are clearly best positioned for the, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, that it's consistent with the act, and that the inherent inefficiencies in a government agency providing both functions, not having to do with the people and their dedication, their professionalism, and their talent, but just those inefficiencies, all those together point us to an opinion that if we want to accelerate the delivery of these savings, and once we start implementing, we want to get the full uh, boat load of those savings, that we do it with the, um, with the utilities providing that function and that division of roles and responsibilities. We can, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there and then we, maybe we can get over to the, um, the other issue that was raised around decoupling, but I'll let yeah, maybe I some of my colleagues to, address um, that. Ask uh, Stephanie to respond to a point you just made. Uh, it does seem to me that the Clean Energy Act does put the onus on the utilities to achieve these savings. Um, uh, well, the if they're going to be held responsible and penalized uh, for not meeting the targets uh, set by the law, um, isn't it right that they administer the programs? Well, let me let me go back to something that David was just saying. Let me let me make this clear. If a little civics lesson here. If a citizen doesn't like what the government agency is doing, they can vote those people out and they can get new people in that will do what they hope to do. If a citizen doesn't like what PSE&G is doing, there is nothing they can do. They are stuck. They are a monopoly and they are, and, and, and I hate to say it, I know many people love their utilities, but many people don't love their utilities. It's not like everybody says, oh yes, PSE&G, we love you, come into our home. It, it, it just isn't reality. And the fact is that, um, and, and to answer your question, Tom, the, in the optimal study, they talked about the fact that the utilities were gonna get credit for what OCE achieves in their service territories. So it's not that, the, the, it, you know, it's a, it's a freebie for the utilities, essentially. It's not going to penalize them. It's actually going to give them credit for what OCE does. But to, to put everybody in this state under the thumb of the utilities and say, you have no choice. If you want to do energy efficiency, you have to go to PSE&G. You have to go to whatever your local um, uh, uh, utility is. That is, is uh, very dangerous, I think. And it's something, again, that we have done and failed at before. And, and again, it's the definition of insanity to say that this time we're going to do it perfectly and it's all going to be great. And, and the other thing I'm going to point out too, again, I, I know I said it before, but you know, your CEO has said very clearly, and he's right, that his obligation is to his shareholders first. And so what happens if you know, energy efficiency is no longer the, 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 the program du jour and the, they're gonna get a higher uh, return doing something else? Are they then going to, to, to try to shift gears um, and move to something else? That's why the, the, the act requires energy efficiency so that the utilities that are not doing energy efficiency right now will have to come to the table. But it's not, 
like it, I don't think I don't do not read the Clean Energy Act as mandating that utilities take over all energy efficiency. In fact, there's a lot of language in there that says otherwise. Uh, Tom, can I just uh, very quickly? Um, but I think the point, Stephanie, there was then that if there was something else that was a more attractive investment, we don't have that choice. We're obligated under Act under the Act to make the investments to hit these targets otherwise be penalized. I didn't mention before also that um, Julian mentioned that in, in Pennsylvania there was a little bit of, I'll call it rating of the fund. And in that, Connecticut, I'm glad we didn't have it in Pennsylvania. In Connecticut, but we have had that here in New Jersey, as I think you know, that since 2008, $1.5 billion of budget that was put in place for energy efficiency programs for the same reasons that Julian just talked about have been diverted by the state to other, other uses. And the, um, and, and with regard to the trade, our, our approach, um, Stephanie, is one that involves trade allies. When I talked about creating 5,000 high quality clean energy jobs, those aren't PSE and G employees. Those are a network of trade allies, of private installers who are availing themselves of these programs. So um, this is not, I don't think of this as a monopoly of PSE and G. This is a trade ally based, strategic partnership based program that really benefits a wide range of companies and businesses well beyond PSE&G. All right, uh, I'd like uh, Neil, uh, I talked to you beforehand. Uh, I knew decoupling was gonna be a controversial topic, but uh, Neil, it's not the only way uh, utilities recover their lost revenues. Uh, other states have different. Mechanisms. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, I think this is, you know, again, <clears throat> I think Isaac sort of said, you know, New Jersey is at a pivotal point right now. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a huge opportunity, and I'd hate to see the state of New Jersey become paralyzed somewhat like your neighbor Delaware has become for the last uh, a decade almost now. Um, I think you're, you know, a lot of the issues that are re are being raised are very legitimate, and I would say, taking a look across the country, there are multiple instruments that function out there. Um, uh, you know, as we look at the question of decoupling, are there other mechanisms that people use? The answer is yes. There's something called which Isaac referred to as the LRAM, or Lost Revenue Adjustment Mechanisms out there. Um, there are also formula rates, which have been used as well. I think all of them go toward attempting to address some key issues, and I think Dave talked about this. One of the things that we look at where you see the greatest success is when you create certainty and transparency for all the players out there in the marketplace. Um, about a dozen years ago, several of my colleagues uh, and I came up with uh, something called the three-legged stool. And this really builds on an understanding, and, and Dave alluded to this, um, what we wanna do is we wanna create financial certainty for the utility. Uh, decoupling is an important part of that in that it makes the utility uh, neutral, if you will, to investing in energy efficiency. 
I think the other key that we have to have there is we also need to make sure that they earn a rate of return. And you can structure that in any way, but it needs to be transparent, it needs to be efficient, and it needs to provide a certain outcome. The, obviously, the, th the last piece is the recovery of the direct cost. So you've got the three stools. You've got the uh, recovery of lost revenue, the recovery of program cost, and then some form of a return on investment. How you do that, there are various ways to do it, um, but having those created in a transparent and efficient way that provides certainty to all players in the marketplace is critical. The second piece, and we've kind of been dancing around this, is this question of how do you coordinate activities? Uh, one of the ideas that's currently uh, under consideration um, by the BPU is standing up some kind of an advisory panel out there. We strongly support that. Uh, the advisory panel gives a chance for all the stakeholders to come together in a neutral environment and come up with some shared perspectives, address many of the issues that we're seeing discussed today right here at the table. Um, we've got some great models out there. The one I would actually commend to you all is one from Arkansas. And um, the name of the group is Partners Working Collaborative, or PWC. No, that's not PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and it functions very, very well. And it oversees the targets, it oversees the evaluation, and I think it, the important element there is it is focused on performance outcomes, getting the most to address Stephanie's concern, making sure that the stakeholders, the customers, I prefer not ratepayers, no offense, please, um, the customers are getting the biggest value out of that energy efficiency resource that uh, both Dave and Isaac have invoked here. And I think that's the way to think about this. One of the questions that obviously is back and forth, do the utilities administer the program? Does the state administer the program? And we've got examples across the country where it has worked very successfully in both cases. Unfortunately, we also have the other side of that, which we will say in cases where both of those have failed. We also have partnerships, and I would use the example um, uh, to the northeast of you, New York, where we see the utilities and NYSERDA dividing programs. Different types of programs are being done by the state and the utility. I think the key thing is creating realistic expectations, setting those targets, providing transparency, and providing certainty to all the players. Those are the elements of success. I think the partnership, the, the, the advisory group, represents a vehicle where you can arbitrate those issues, but clearly, um, you know, the thing is, and I think Dave made this point, don't get paralyzed because I think that is a real risk for New Jersey. We've seen that in Delaware, and it's been personally a frustrating, having made many trips to Wilmington, uh, a frustrating experience. 
I'm trying to move this topic along, but we seem to be getting paralyzed by the decoupling issue. Uh, I just want to ask a question that somebody submitted before we uh, had this panel is, is there any type of decoupling provision that you could support, uh, Stephanie? If we got rid of Section 13 of Reggie, we can talk about decoupling. But I don't think the utilities want that. I mean, that's the problem here, is that the legislature went the other way. Okay, the, Instead of doing decoupling, our legislature said, utilities, we're going to give you contemporaneous recovery at your full weighted average cost of capital. And that is something that is a, it's a gift, and it's almost, it's almost unique in this country. So if we, if we get rid of that, then we can talk about decoupling. But if we're going to have that plus decoupling plus percent uh, performance incentives, we're overpaying. And we did that with solar. We're now readjusting where we are with solar. Let's not do it with energy efficiency. And that's, that's the point that nobody seems to want to, to listen to. And that's why we are paralyzed. We've been paralyzed for a long time over this issue of decoupling. I'm tired of talking about it. But the fact is, you can't have it all. If you want to have, if, you know, if we get rid of Section 13 of Reggie, then, I can, then we can talk about decoupling. But I don't think that's what the utilities want. I, and and you know, when I've raised it, certainly nobody has said, yeah, let's do that. Um, and, I, and that's the problem in New Jersey. Frankly, we always, talk, we always spend all our time talking about how people are going to get paid and not program. It, it took us forever. And we now are getting real measurement and verification. We're getting real evaluations. We're in a, a place where if we had an advisory panel with all the stakeholders involved, we could start really digging in to figure out what are the incentive levels that will actually bring about the most energy efficiency? What are the best ways to go about these programs? PSE&G has been doing programs now for a while. They have experience. Let's learn from it. Let's stop talking about how much we're going to pay them and start talking about developing programs. Um, and, I, and I just, you know, and then I just want to go back to one other thing, is I understand that PSE&G, if it, if it becomes the sole provider of energy efficiency in its service territory, will utilize low, uh, other businesses, I get that. But then that means that we're just tacking on, um, instead of having those local businesses do the work and, and be able to, to be the providers, they then are going to be beholden to PSE&G, and they'll have to go through PSE&G to get their customers, and I think that's a system that will be less efficient and more expensive. Okay, I'm uh, I keep getting questions on this that people want to know. Uh, get, uh, I'm first going to ask Neil a question, then I'm going to go back to Isaac and who raised the decoupling issue, so it's up to him to solve it. Uh, but uh, well done. <clears throat> I want to ask Neil, how successful uh, are the LI, uh, the RAM, uh, RAM formula rates compared to decoupling? The devil is always in the details on this. I think one of the advantages of the three-legged stool, including decoupling, uh, along with uh, an incentive, as well as the uh, program cost recovery, is it's transparent, it's symmetric, and it provides a surety of outcome. Uh, all of the other mechanisms we're aware of out there tend to be more regulatorily complex, and they tend to have uh, uncertainty, uh, and by that I mean a delay in terms of 
when the adjustments take place, and that's one of the big challenges with LRAM. Um, and, and LRAM is not created equal. Uh, there is what's called asymmetric LRAM, which is the utility goes in, recovers the cost. If it's low, they may also over-recover. And so in an asymmetric LRAM, as in Virginia, you're in a situation where the utility has a um, regulatory, creates a regulatory asset that sits on the books, um, which is always challenging. You can go to a symmetric LRAM where the uh, next rate case comes in or adjustment period comes in, you adjust down. You can recover. The nice thing about decoupling is it happens contemporaneously and it, it essentially trues up automatically. They can all work. Um, in Arkansas, they use formula rates. Uh, it effectively gives you the exact same and uh, they just have to go, they're required by statute and, or by um, uh, commission rule, uh, they have to go in annually. And so they basically have to do a rate case. Uh, that's an administrative burden on the, um, in the case of Public Service Commission in Arkansas. It's also a burden and cost on the utility. So th there are pluses and minuses. Isaac. Yeah, thanks. Um, so a couple things I just want to touch on. One, if we look back at the Reggie Law and we say that's what the state wanted to do, it does allow for revenue recovery. So to me, the question isn't do they get a return or do they get revenue recovery? It's like, what's the best way to take all these things together? Uh, and in my mind, it's to, to use this kind of symmetrical process. Obviously, there's different ways to do it. Neil talked about him and, and we could continue talking about him. I also don't want it to seem like I disagree with you on everything. I think the most important thing you said is that this upcoming process needs to be open. It needs to be transparent. All these decisions are being made depending on the schedule you look at over the next two months, five months, the summer, the end of the year. That process needs to be inclusive because uh, you can ask Dave and he's going to tell you we're going to get to the same point that he's already proposed and he finds the utilities to be the best delivery mechanism. When we get into this conversation, everybody needs to be able to play a part in it and it has to be a, a kind of fruitful discussion to get to the best results or you're right, New Jersey isn't gonna get what's best and really that's what we all want here and we may disagree on the best mechanism to do that but we want the best thing for New Jersey. We want New Jersey residents and customers and businesses to save the most amount of money um, we want the environment to be improved. We want it to be as least cost as possible. So obviously, that's what we all want. We just need to figure out the best way to do that. Um, one thing about you know the programs, whoever administers them, there are going to be costs. It's not like if the utility has costs, it's a lot for people. And if OCE or a government entity runs it, there's no costs. It's just about how they collect those costs and whether they're collected um, immediately or over time. I look at that as a value to the utility model, meaning they can kind of shape the rate impacts to customers. If these programs, which need to achieve 2% and 0.75% savings, um, all get kind of, all the costs get put into a single year, that's billions of dollars on, on people's customer bills. And a utility has the ability to stretch those costs over time. And for that, you put a rate of return on top of that. And that rate of return, if you Think about how you would discount a cost back to present value terms. 
if it's equal to the, if the rate of return is equal to the discount rate, it's the same current value cost to customers. So there, it's not actually an additional current value cost, it's a cost paid over time. And for that ability, you pay them the discount rate or the time value of money. So it, it's just something important to consider when you're looking at that. And again, different ways of doing things, and obviously the process is gonna be really important to figure that out, and I totally agree with that. Uh, and then one other thing you talked about, which definition of insanity. I agree, you don't wanna make the same mistakes twice, and I think that's something important here is that we're kind of ch trying to change the market structure by putting in decoupling, putting in incentives, so that there's an a different environment for utilities or whoever is kind of running these programs to operate in so that they're incentivized to do the right things because if those things are there and they weren't previously, hopefully that will kind of put the, the market signal out there to operate in a certain way, which wasn't there before. And Tom, okay. can I just add one quick item? Sure. Um, you know, on the Office of Clean Energy roles and responsibility discussion, sometimes I feel like our position um, is viewed as diminishing the role of the Office of Clean Energy when I don't see it that way at all. That if you think about the role of policy making, of governance and oversight, of audit, of verification of the incentives and so on, what a critical role that is. It's just separate from execution. To me, that split is a best practice around partnership, but neither one of those roles is a lesser role than the other. And then just <clears throat> on the GEM, because I have, or on the decoupling, we call it green enabling mechanism, we call it GEM. Um, you know, just a couple quick points. One is that our assessment of the best programs that are out there, our benchmarking says that the best ones use decoupling. The top nine electric programs, 17 out of the top 20 electric programs, all use decoupling. All the top gas programs use decoupling. So I think our view is that the benchmarking says it gets you the best result. Uh, secondly, that with regard to a program this size, on a company like BSE&G, the impact of not recovering lost revenues is a very, very big number. It's a real impact to us. It's over $160 million over the course of these programs. That doesn't result in a fair and appropriate financial outcome for us. And then thirdly, with regard to uh, what we're proposing, this decoupling mechanism, we think it is also a best practice. It doesn't eliminate whatsoever the incentive for the, for the company, the utility, to reduce costs. We are still at risk of losing customers. There's significant customer protections in it with regard to um, there being a, an earnings cap, a rate charge um, uh, uh, cap, and so on. And so um, for those reasons, is, we, we think the, the proposal we've made on GEM decoupling is, is appropriate. I'm sorry, Dave, I, I gotta dispute this because we have, we're now in, I think, probably our fourth or fifth case uh, where PSE&G has come in asking for either an LRAM or a decoupling mechanism or something, and in every single one of those cases, we asked, show us what revenues you've lost. And they have never been able to demonstrate any lost revenues. And a lot of it is because they are earning their full weighted average cost of capital on their energy efficiency investments. And so to say that 
oh, we need this because it, you know, and first of all, $160 million for PSE&G is like a rounding error. So, you know, let's, let's be real here. Um, but, but, but no one has ever been able to demonstrate that this is somehow hitting PSE&G's bottom line. And, and that's something that is, I mean, we, we need to stop talking theoreticals and start dealing with actual proofs. And that's what, um, that's when we're gonna start getting programs that fairly compensate the utilities for the work that they're doing, but don't overpay them so that we have enough money to do all the things that we want to do. And so this, this argument that, oh, you know, if you don't give us this, we're not, we, you know, we can't afford to do energy efficiency, it's just not true. We're paying them as if they're running pipes and wires. And that is a good, it's a good return, it's a fair return. And if you want to do a decoupling mechanism, then we're n we can't also pay you as if you're as if you're putting in pipes and wires because it's it's a it's a windfall, and and I think we need to as a as a state we need to stop doing this. You know we unfortunately you know now our solar program is a bit stalled because we were overpaying for so many years for solar and now we've realized we've got to bring that back down to earth and 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 on, I, I I you know I know the solar people are very concerned about what is the future of the solar program and so let's not go down that road with energy efficiency let's do it right from the beginning and really you know I'm not saying we shouldn't fairly pay the the utilities for the work that they do and they do some very good work but we can't just throw money at it we've got to come up with a, a collaborative process with everybody involved you know if you've read the optimal study it says you got to <laughs> pick either or you know they they actually call for one-year amortization of energy efficiency investments without the allowing for 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 a return um, and so you know it, 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 it's a question of, of you know which which do you want you can't have it all and we can't we can't do we can't pay the utilities that much and still have enough money to do all the things we want to do and and I you know I we have we have been in so many of these cases we've asked the utility to prove their point and they haven't been able to do it Julian and then we're not going to mention that word again. <laughs> uh, I'll try to avoid the word. Uh, I, I just want to note, just our, without speaking to whether the New Jersey specific programs are too generous to utilities, just looking at from our vantage point across the river in Pennsylvania, uh, and when more broadly we try to approach energy efficiency as a resource, uh, we need to be able to compete. And, and, and when I say that, and, and compete with generation. Uh, we, energy efficiency, just to keep in mind for everybody, we have vast potential for energy efficiency. It is cost effective. It is the least cost resource we should invest in. And, and who that we is and how much, it's all very important, and I, I don't mean to diminish it. But, but, but that being the goal, and in order for energy efficiency to compete with generation, there needs to be a lot of regulatory adjustment because power companies, uh, <laughs> earn, and, and just speaking more broadly than the deregulated and, and, uh, and, and, and generation companies, earn money on capital investments. And so, you know, I hear you, the, the, the New Jersey uh, example is a little bit different, but, um, when in Pennsylvania, we're, we're dragging distribution companies into Act 129 into tiny little efficiency investments, 
you know, <laughs> kicking and screaming uh, in their own words into energy efficiency investments uh, because uh, they, their, their revenues are dependent on volumetric sales and uh, capital investments in poles and wires, which are diminished in a world of reducing energy. And so we're fighting all kinds of headwinds uh, when we um, think about energy efficiency resource despite energy efficiency being the least cost resource. We're, we're, we're fighting headwinds um, of the utility business model. We're fighting headwinds in the difficulty of measurement and verification and for accounting for the full value of energy efficiency. Uh, and so we just need to keep those in mind uh, as we balance that against the decisions about how much utilities should be able to earn. We always need to compare that with how utilities and other act, what utilities and other actors are earning making other investments. Um, because PSE&G is proposing very aggressive spending in New Jersey uh, where they have their ability to earn revenue on it in other places like Pennsylvania, where that ability to earn revenue is, if, uh, is, is diminished significantly, U utilities are not making investments that they don't have to make. Um, and so I think we should, you know, uh, look at also what, what things could be if those business models aren't, aren't in place. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about, uh, Neil talked about and got me, uh, excited talking about the tremendous potential in New Jersey for energy uh, efficiency. One of the things you mentioned was transportation. Um, I thought you mentioned a lot of interesting things. It sounds like uh, the Port Authority might not be doing enough on the transportation side. What more, I mean, and there's been a lot of criticism in New Jersey that uh, the state is not moving fast enough electrifying the transportation system. Though there was uh, some nice uh, grants awarded uh, this past week to electrify parts of the port operation and so on. Why don't we, what, what could the state be doing more on the transportation side, which is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emission and most of the air pollution that uh, impairs air quality what more can be done and what is in the state doing? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you, you hit on a lot of them. Uh, a lot of this is about where you make your investments. Uh, you know, New Jersey, um, you know, I think of New Jersey, I think of the Garden State and I think of the Turnpike. Um, uh, you know, the reality is you've got the rail uh, system out there uh, chronically underinvested in. Um, you've got the opportunities, uh, and you mentioned electrification on the port side, electrification on the vehicle side. Um, we see, uh, we think also taking a look at electrifying uh, many of the vehicles down at the city and municipal levels. Uh, some of the trades out there, uh, what we call vocational vehicles, things like garbage trucks, uh, school buses, things like that. These are technologies that are available today, and there are opportunities to deal with that. Now, that presents challenges for uh, PSENG and their brethren in the state. Um, we're talking about adding new loads that are going to fundamentally shift the load shape for the utility, and that represents a challenge for the utility. 
not an insurmountable challenge, but it's one that's going to, again, require some investments and some uh, thoughtful activities. Efficiency in other sectors frees up that capacity to actually electrify stuff. The other thing to think about is, you know, investing, as I mentioned, New Jersey Rail, the freight rail systems out there, dealing with intermodalities, making sure that you've got the transit options available. And this is going to be particularly important, uh, both from an environmental perspective, but also from an equity perspective. Make sure that the transit options are available to people in all the urban areas in New Jersey. Um, and, uh, you know, this has a benefit. One of the big things we look at, one of the most Im negatively impactful health environment is the PM 2.5 emissions. Those come from diesel fuel, uh, you know, garbage trucks, school buses, things like that. We love to think about uh, going in and uh, I call it the de-dieselization of the urban cores out there. How can we replace those diesel buses, trucks, uh, other vehicles, and um, replace them with electric vehicles in those core? We think that represents a huge opportunity for the state. And it also, if done correctly, can leverage investments that you have in assets like your nuclear power plants to meet that with uh, minimal environmental impact. Anybody else? Yeah, I, th I think the equity issue is a big one. And just as the state's looking to uh, invest in electric vehicles in general to make sure to focus in on, you know, uh, inner cities, urban areas, that's where kind of localized emissions do the most damage to people. And it's where people don't necessarily um, or aren't able to invest in some of those technologies on their own. So in the more affluent communities, uh, it may be easier to get electric vehicles and charging stations. Uh, there needs to, we need to make sure that we get the focus in and, and look at some of the areas that can't necessarily do it on their own and help promote it in ways. And that's kind of a perfect area for um, whoever's doing the investment, government or other, to kind of focus in on um, in the future. Tom, I would just say for um, our, part of our clean energy program involves an electric vehicle uh, charging infrastructure program. And we have looked, uh, very closely at the loads that we might expect as the penetration of EVs rises in the state, which is expected. And I think between the effects of conservation, energy efficiency, and uh, more importantly, managed uh, charging programs, um, it's uh, very doable. And the, um, the program that we've uh, suggested and proposed is one that would seed the market with charging infrastructure about the residential level, uh, and then moving up to multifamily travel corridors and so on. And the um, particularly a focus on, as you said, Isaac, in putting electric vehicle infrastructure into the inner cities. Um, many of our lower income areas are located in regions around um, travel corridors, um, around ports, around airports. And so the air quality in our inner cities is clearly not uh, what it is in the suburbs and the incidence rates of um, respiratory illnesses, asthma, and other, otherwise with children in these inner city areas because of their relative location to these corridors is higher. And so we're very excited about that program. One of them is an electric school bus pilot program that would just do just that and other types of programs like that. So um, I just want to uh, 
build on some of the things that Neil was saying. I mean, I do think that there's a, there are huge equity issues um, when it comes to this issue. Again, you know, the initial proposals were have the utilities build charge, uh, you know, a, a backbone charging um, uh, infrastructure. And uh, again, there's a there is a competitive industry out there that might do it without the need for us to pay for the utilities to do it all. And I think we need to explore that. I don't think we should immediately jump to having the utilities rate base um, charging stations. I, I would also I also have to point out that for for low income and and middle income communities, especially in the inner city. You know, building a charging station, yeah, that's great, but it's really not what they need. The cheapest um, electric vehicle at this point is about $30,000. I, I didn't even, I buy a $30,000 car when, when I bought a car recently. So, it, you know, it, it, it really, I think initially should, the focus should be on things like school buses and, and garbage trucks and and, and building up our public uh, transit infrastructure because in the inner cities, the, you know, the buses are the things that are, are the worst offenders. Uh, you know, building a charging station that's, is something that will come in, in the inner city. But it, it, right now, I think the bigger bang for the buck, let's, let's, let's do that. Um, let's, let's de, I like that, de-dieselize. Um, you know, I, th I think that's a much better way to go. And let's, again, let's not take the easy way out and just say, oh, hey, utilities, go ahead and, and build these and rate base them um, rather than trying to see what will, there, there are multiple companies that are building charging stations throughout the country. Um, they would happily build a lot of our charging stations. We know there is gonna have to be some repair contribution, um, but it needs to be so, you know, carefully planned and carefully selected. Build the, maybe repairs only build the stations where the, the private market doesn't go ahead and build them. Okay, Neil, before you uh, finish, I want you, when you answer whatever you say, include in a little description of the uh, freight bridge that you're talking about. What, what exactly that entailed? But that sounds like a great idea of reducing the diesel emissions if you put it on trains instead of on the exactly. New York freeway. Exactly. Uh, one thing I, I in, in I think we're, I, I hear Dave and Stephanie sort of talking past each other a little bit on this issue. Um, the reality is that you're going, that PSENG is going to be impacted on their distribution transmission system with electrification of transportation, whether we're talking freight, New Jersey transit, school buses, personal vehicles. I think all of those things are going to impact the utility. I think it's important that there's a, there is a very, very important public policy role out there um, with respect to electrification of the transit sector and particularly individual vehicle electrification. One of those has to do with what we'll call intelligent charging. Um, that requires an intelligent system. I have a, if you think about it, you know, if you plug into your home with what's called level one charging, it's gonna take a long time to charge your electric vehicle or your bus or your garbage truck or whatever. The reality is you can do that and there may be the right time to do that. One thing to do is think about as part of your zoning ordinances require uh, workplace charging. In a lot of cases, there's excess electricity available during the workday. 
And you can charge that at very, very low levels. As soon as you move to level two or level three charging, all of a sudden the impact on the electricity system goes up dramatically. In a lot of cases, if you're a level two charger, it's more than double the electric load from draw from a house. The worst thing you could do is have somebody come home and plug in their electric vehicle right at that peak for PSE&G or the other utilities and basically double the demand on the distribution system. So we need to, uh, one of my friends in the electric vehicle space says, there are two kinds of level two and level three charging. There's smart charging and there's stupid charging. <laughs> and so one of the things we've got to do is we've got to mandate that if you put charging in, either it needs to be done in such a way that there's an opportunity for minimizing the grid impact in smart ways out there and making those interactive. So I think those are important things. In terms of the rail bridge idea, the idea is if we are to, one of the things is we know for a fact that the lowest carbon way on land to move freight is with a rail. The challenge is the infrastructure needed to deal with what we call the intermodality, the shifting. Port of New, uh, New York and New Jersey, you've got stuff coming in to the port from around the world. You've got stuff coming in from around the country to go out to the world. You know, I just rode by the famous bridge and you, know, you guys all know the, you know, uh, Trenton makes, the world takes. Um, and that probably could be applied to the port. And so the idea here is if we can create a transit hub where you bring freight into Albany, into Buffalo, potentially other locations in Pennsylvania, for example, and have them come by rail to the port where they can be transited over to, the, um, to Marine or vice versa, do the other way, what we can do is significantly reduce VMT. And I think the vehicle miles traveled for freight is one of the things. We talk a lot about reducing emissions, reducing energy use in, in freight. The first thing is if we can reduce the vehicle miles traveled and by shifting the modality from over the road freight to rail, you get multiple benefits. You get environmental benefits. You also get congestion relief. And, um, you know, I, every time I come up this way and drive, I prefer the rail because I hate driving, no offense to your famous turnpike and garbage uh, garden state. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, you know, I really look with trepidation when I cross over the Delaware Memorial Bridge. Um, you know, if we can get some of those trucks off the road and get that freight onto rail to get it out of New Jersey, that's going to have a huge positive benefit. Yeah, what was the number you used? 100,000 miles? 100,000 vehicle miles per day wow. of freight if we could establish a rail bridge to Albany. That's amazing. Okay, go, moving on. Um, well, I wanted to talk about, and this is a good question, uh, if I can find it. Oh, 
Uh, about you also mentioned uh, we've talked about the low and moderate income households, the, the heavy burden on them. What additional incentives beyond the current ones can be provided uh, to encourage um, energy efficiency for those who live in the inner cities and don't have the income that uh, uh, the, the people in the suburbs have? And that's sort of an issue that addresses uh, an inequity of solar. Um, we've built more than 100,000 solar installations in the state, but most of those have been in uh, the suburbs, the wealthy suburbs, and among well-to-do people. How do we extend energy efficiency benefits to the cities and low and moderate income households? One of the things ACEEE loves to do is look at what works out there in the marketplace. When I started over a quarter century ago, we did a whole series on what works, what succeeds, what doesn't. And that really defines the mantra of what we do. I'm going to call to your attention the idea that's currently being implemented in Austin, Texas. Um, one of the, the, now granted this is municipal utilities, public utility, but the idea is they want to make sure that solar is available to all customers, or all citizens, and the low income customer or the customer who happens to live under a tree um, may not be, have an opportunity to put solar on their own uh, facility. And so they do community solar and then allow people to essentially buy into the community solar. Um, in this case, it happens to, it, it's a combination of city and private developers, but the idea is you can buy in and essentially pay for it on your electric bill. The element that I like particularly about the Austin program is in order for a low-income customer to participate in the program, they have to go through and weatherize their homes. They have to do the efficiency before they're allowed to buy the, the solar. Now, that's the good news. The bad news, I was at a symposium yesterday and we had a long discussion about low income and access challenge issues. The biggest challenge that we see, and I'm sure if we went to city of Trenton, if we went to city of Newark, any place in this uh, where the urban population or in the rural areas is there are a whole bunch of homes that need to be weatherized that can benefit from energy efficiency that can't be weatherized because there's some structural or safety impairment in that facility. And this is not something that we can put on the energy efficiency program, fixing the roof, fixing the electrical, fixing the uh, various other structural issues that may make it, you know, if, if I am to be a weatherization agency and I go in and I see that the house is unsafe, um, as we were talking to the mayor of Pittsburgh's office last night uh, at a reception, uh, one of the comments he made is, the problem is we've got homes that if we walk in, we're gonna red tag the home as unsafe. And then all of a sudden we create a homeless problem. So how do we basically come up with the resources and make those investments necessary to get the home safe so that we can weatherize and actually reduce the energy bills and not create a homeless challenge. Those are the challenges 
I don't have the answer. If I did, I would, uh, I don't know, I'd be something really amazing. It, it, I agree with everything that Neil just said, but also to add to that is the, is the, the problem of tenancy, right? So not everybody um, owns their own home and ha is in a position to do that work, um, and not everybody has a willing landlord who's gonna put money into a home where they may not be getting uh, you know, enough of a, um, a rental income to, to do the work and, and make it uh, pay off. So it's a huge, it's a huge issue. And to me, this, this is why we, we don't want to overpay for everything else, right? We want to have money left over where we can see some programs that are administered by either the Office of Clean Energy or um, the utility where um, there is going to have to be some form of socialization of those costs so that people aren't left behind. Does that mean uh, we might have to consider rebates uh, for the uh, low and moderate income? <laughs> Households, or that's not going to be enough. I'm not sure rebates are enough. I mean, I I I, I'm, I live in a town with a lot of old houses, and I know that I'm facing having to um, replace my you know my heating system, and you know even for moderate income people, it's expensive. And and you know a rebate is great. Uh, you know the 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 two hundred three hundred dollars, maybe even a thousand dollars that you can get is great, but. Um, a lot of people can't, can still not afford the, the remainder of that cost. And so uh, it is something that we're going to have to grapple with. And it's, to me, a reason why we want to make sure we don't overspend on, on you know, where, where there are people who do have the money to afford to make those changes. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Isaac, then Dave. Yeah, I, I was going to agree with all that. You know, obviously, there's some low-income programs now, and, and they offer very generous rebates, you know, thousands of dollars, up to 100% of the cost. But the biggest impediment is structural or health-related issues in the house that make it so you can't make some of these fixes. So to your direct question, if you, if you were going to incentivize something, it would be find a way to bridge that gap between things that aren't strictly energy-related that uh, limit the ability to do energy upgrades. Yeah, and I was <clears throat> just going to add that, um, you know, our, our program involves 22 separate sub-programs. One of them is a low-income, limited-income program. And, um, you know, we found that, um, you know, it's direct install of energy efficiency measures, weatherization, um, that's provided to those folks at uh, no cost. And so when you look at each of the 22 programs and you look at the cost and the benefits of all of those, as you said, Stephanie, the... Um, you do have a socialization of the benefits on these other programs where you have very attractive benefit to cost ratios covering that cost. And we look at the total portfolio, and the total portfolio still comes out with a very strong result. But you know on that segment, you are socializing a little bit of the cost because there's a lot of hanging fruit there. Okay. Uh, what about uh, one of the things that you mentioned, uh, Neil, was um, building codes. Uh, is there more to be done? You're saying we're not doing a bad job uh, on energy efficiency and building codes, but people in the environmental community are constantly complaining that, well, they're generally constantly complaining anyway, but they say that the state's not doing enough uh, in terms of revamping building codes. Nobody's doing enough. Um, uh, I was at a symposium yesterday, and we were talking about 
uh, concepts of uh, moving toward, uh, how many people have heard of the term passive house? Okay, so you've got a couple of folks out there. This is really looking at trying to get the home, get the commercial building, get the apartment or whatever down to the level where you can easily go net zero, net zero or in some cases net positive on uh, emissions. We need to be moving toward net zero codes or net zero ready codes out there, whether you want to go to California where you actually mandate uh, solar panels on the roof or not, but you can get a lot of the way there. Um, I would even push, and we were talking about this yesterday at the symposium, moving beyond just looking at the energy consumption, but looking at the embedded carbon in the buildings themselves. How do you basically, particularly in new construction, go to minimizing the amount of greenhouse gases associated with construction material? Um, if we look at commercial buildings today, most of them are steel and concrete. We're starting to see people going to wood high-rises, and I know this sounds like back to the future, but the idea is using engineered wood products we're seeing, for example, in British Columbia, in China and Taiwan, they're building 40 to 80 story high rise structures out of engineered wood products. They're able to reduce the carbon footprint of the structure itself uh, by 60% by doing that. And by the way, if you happen to be in an urban area, you're actually reducing the amount of structure that's required to support the structure above it and so you end up with a 10 to 15% increase in usable square footage per um, footprint um, and with some significant benefits. So we're talking about really transformative changes in the building sector and that's where codes need to go. And um, uh, nobody's there yet, but there's lots of opportunities. I know I'm on the panel, so I'm not supposed to ask questions, but I was very interested in the, the uh, bar on your chart about appliance standards and how it, it was all yellow, it looked like, for New Jersey, and I was interested in, in what you thought we could be doing on those. It's a great question, Stephanie. Um, we've been relying in large part over the last uh, 30 years on the federal government leading on appliance standards, and we've made huge amounts of success. If we look at the contributions uh, from energy policy over the last 25 years, building codes, energy, utility programs, and appliance and equipment standards are where you've done that. If we look at it from a carbon response program, those three account for 60% of the carbon GHG reductions in the United States over the last dozen or so years come from those, uh, which also includes vehicle standards, by the way. Um, that's the good news. The bad news is the political winds have shifted in Washington. Um, I don't think I need to say more than to say that word and appliance and equipment standards are no longer 
in vogue, if anything, we're looking at them being rolled back. So we're starting to see states actually step up and actually enact the codes and step into the vacuum that's been created. And I think there are opportunities for New Jersey to lead on that, and that's something that um, the governor and the legislature should look at seriously. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little on codes. Obviously, that brings us to the Clean Energy Act, which allows codes to be counted or code improvements to be counted towards the uh, requirements. Uh, how that functionally happens needs to be figured out. Um, but something important to look at is not just what the code is, but a enforcement of the code. So just because a code says you have to do something doesn't mean people actually have that be done in their homes or businesses or wherever it's being done. And then number two is kind of almost the flip side of that is the overbuild as compared to code. So there's a lot of buildings that will you know, put on ultra redundancy. And what that ends up doing is they may be efficient equipment, but you have way too much capacity for what you need. And, and that also increases usage that doesn't need to be there. And just to quickly say on the code compliance piece, we're not allowed to do that in Pennsylvania, uh, but we have done pilot studies and it's some of the most, and I know other Massachusetts, Arizona do it, and it's some of the most cost effective efficiency you can do. Uh, one of the things that uh, you mentioned earlier, Isaac, I thought uh, made a lot of sense, common sense, was that you make these energy efficiency programs um, as easy as possible to follow for the uh, customer. How, what are problems by, uh, if you get, hand the program over to the utilities and they each, each utility sets different type of programs for uh, their franchise territory. Is that gonna create problems and how do you solve that? I don't see that as a huge issue. Uh, utilities already have programs, the state has programs. Every town has their own construction and permitting codes. The, the, the vendors that are working on this understand how to deal with four or seven utilities and, and can work through that. The other advantage of having utilities have their own incentive structures is not every utility is the same and not every utility has the same costs and the customers within that utility might need different incentives to get projects done. And being able to tailor it to the actual costs of the people in that utility rather than kind of flat across everyone I think is something that can help as we drive towards the really ambitious goals and we need to kind of get everything we can is something at least important to consider. Well, traditionally though, statewide, having statewide programs has been a very, very important policy uh, position of the, of the state. Um, and I, you know, I don't think, I don't know that it's necessarily, um, we've achieved that because we certainly have had some utilities that haven't really done, done much of anything. And I think the OCE programs have stepped in where that, where that occurred. Um, but it, it has generally been the, the, the policy of the state to try to make these programs available to everyone at, throughout the state and to make them at least understandable and uniform throughout the state. I, I do think that the understandable part is really, really important because um, it can be daunting for people. Um, I think it's also important to make people aware of it before they need whatever equipment it is. When, you, when your water heater goes, you just want whatever the plumber can put in tomorrow. You know? You're not necessarily thinking, you, you know, you're like, oh, make it energy efficient if you can, but if that's, you, get, you take what's available. So if you have people thinking ahead of time and with enough education of, okay, 
you're going to need to replace that in a year or so. Start thinking about what you know, what you can and can't do, what you can and can't afford, where you might be able to take advantage of some of the efficiencies. I think that's really important. Okay, we haven't really focused too much on big picture, how the state's going to achieve all these uh, provisions in the Clean Energy Act that suggest that, uh, that mandate uh, 2% and 0.75 uh, reductions in electric and gas use. Um, I'd just like to uh, ask the panelists to um, how do we move this process along? I mean, the, according to the draft budget, I think of uh, OCE, uh, they're not anticipating having this program up and running until July 2020. And that, to me, seems to be a little ambitious, given what hasn't been reached, uh, the, what various items that there is no consensus on how to move, some of which we've talked about, uh, who administers the program performance incentives, uh, penalties, so forth and so on. What's the biggest hurdle you see moving forward? And does that, uh, is there anything the state can do to move that faster? Stephanie. You go first. Good. Um, I have to admit, I'm a little worried um, about our capacity to do it all um, in a reasonable time frame. And we have to, we know that. Um, but I will tell you that our, you know, our office has yet to, we have not missed a single deadline. Um, you know, in the, you know, when we get five days to, to comment on something, we've gotten co our comments in. And I'm very proud of my staff that, that they have been able to do it. And it's quality work. We, we've maintained our, our quality of work. Um, but I'll tell you something, we're tired, and, and, and it's, it's only June of 2019. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a daunting task. It's, I know that at um, BPU, they're also working really, really hard, but I, when we do get these reports that we've never seen before and only get five days to comment on them, and then the comments are sort of just out there in the ether, um, I, I've, I'm concerned that the comments aren't, e aren't really being considered uh, carefully enough that, that um, we're gonna end up with good decisions. I, I do think the, the, that having a full process, hearing from all the stakeholders, um, that it leads to better decisions. Um, I, on energy efficiency, our office has uh, said that we think that the, the existing programs should be maintained uh, while we're doing this. Uh, there, you know, I, I don't know how closely you all follow are following the PSE and G case, but um, that's actually a middle ground in the case, believe it or not, we're not the, the more radical party in that one. Um, but, so we don't wanna see, we don't wanna see anybody winding down. We'd rather see things staying the same, and then once, uh, once we really do have a program together, once we really do have an under, our ducks in order, then, then we will need to ramp up pretty quickly. But there does need to be some staging done, I think, because I'm a little bit concerned about whether or not we're more focused on deadlines than we are on programs. Dave, why don't you jump in there? Because that, uh, several people are saying, hold on, off on your filing, and just continue to do what you've been doing. Yeah, so we have 
programs that are underway, and Stephanie, I, I do appreciate you took the middle ground there around continuing those programs while we sort some of these details out. But as you know, and we all know that those programs are a long way from achieving anything close to the targets. So I think I, I come back to where I started at the very beginning around, I don't think anybody is in disagreement about the appropriateness of the policy goals. We all support those. I think everybody is in agreement that the programs when implemented, however we implement it, will save billions of dollars. For us, is it five billion or is it six billion? We'll speak conservative and say it's five billion. It's, is it 24 million tons of carbon or is it 26 million tons? Let's be conservative and say it's 24 and so on. So I think you know, the savings <clears throat> are there in terms of the bill, the greenhouse reductions, the, the, the jobs that'll be created. There's generally agreement on all of that. And there's generally agreement that they will be had once we start implementing. So I come back to our challenge is to collaborate. Um, I'm convinced that if I spend a little bit more time with Stephanie, I can convince her about where I stand on, de on decoupling. <laughs> uh, and <clears throat> no, but collab <laughs> collaboration. And so I come back to where, what our challenge really is, Tom, which is, you know, the, the, the savings are there. Everybody agrees with them. And so how do we start to implement, start to bring those benefits forward? to our customers, to our businesses, for the state, at the same time that yes, we do need to work through these issues. These are, these are tough issues. But I'm convinced that there is a path to us to work these in parallel. We gotta multitask. And I do appreciate my staff is working so hard and is Ray Council, is the BPU staff. Um, there's many, many things on their plate. But we need to, I think, step back and put a stake in the ground that from this point forward, we're not just going to maintain the existing programs, and I do understand that's a middle ground, but that we put a stake in the ground that we're gonna determine a way now to start to bring those savings forward while we think about these other things with an understanding that where we end up might be here, here, or here, but there's a way to do both, and that is really the issue, and that we don't find ourselves in analysis paralysis which I do concern, have concerns about as well. So I think, Tom, to directly answer your question, we need to put that stake in the ground that we're gonna multitask. We do it all the time, and these savings are too big and too important not to try. Yeah, I uh, I'll, I'll add on to that. Where we are right now, it's impossible that we're not multitasking or going parallel. I mean, the goals set forth in the law are ambitious, and everything has to go right just to get to those. So there's, there's no way we can't be moving forward with everything to get there. You know, obviously, the way we get there, I agree, collaboration, openness, making sure that everybody has access to all the decision making and as you're working through the potential study or any of these other things, access to all the information so you can make informed, uh, substantive uh, comments to them rather than just quick ones is important to do that. Um, but, you know, these goals are going to be hard to get to. The answer of how to do that, you know, that needs to be figured out. Obviously, you know, it, it needs to happen quickly. You cannot snap your fingers and suddenly go from where we are right now, like a 0.35% savings to 2% overnight. It takes time to build up the ecosystem in New Jersey to get to the point where you can get to that much savings. And there's also the idea that 
you know, we talked a little bit about your boiler is going to go out and you need to fix it. That's happening in these interim times. You're going to lose savings. People whose boiler goes out tomorrow, if there's not a program in place for them, won't be incentivized in any way to get any energy savings. So you need to make sure that we get to the people now, even though we're five plus years ahead of when the target is, those savings are lost for 15 years until their boiler goes out again. So I don't want, it's an equity issue in addition. You need to make sure you get everyone leading up. You need to make sure you can ramp up to where you need to get to. And you need to start yesterday and everything needs to be open. So 100% needs to be parallel paths, but also needs to be an open, accessible process. Just one, one quick thing, though. We, we do have to worry, though, about what we were just talking about, which was customer confusion. And so what I, don't, what I think would be problematic is to start and then stop and then try something else and then start something else. And, you know, so, so until we have the clear policy directions, it, you, you need to be careful about going forward with a program that may end up then not being where the the, the state ends up going. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm sorry, Jimmy. Oh, I was just going to quickly say I uh, the from our perspective in Pennsylvania. Uh, I, you're in an amazing position here, and there are huge challenges. Uh, but um, you know, I hope we can all seize it. Uh, and because in Pennsylvania, we would we would only love to have be looking at two percent uh, targets and to to have the potential to to get the kind of savings that we can in in New Jersey. So it's going to be hard, but but seize the opportunity. Okay, I'm. S one last. Yeah, one last, Neil. Having spent four decades doing this stuff, uh, maybe I'll take a perspective on it. You're not going to get it right out of the gate. That's the reality. They're, you're going to need to make some corrections. I think it goes back to something we talked about earlier. You need to establish a collaborative process, and Isaac invoked that. I think Stephanie, Dave, Julian, everybody has said, need to establish a, a, a collaborative, cooperative process. You will need to make adjustments make sure you've got the process in place that allows you to make the pro those adjustments in an orderly and collaborative and transparent way. All right, I'm afraid we've uh, run out of time and I apologize to those who submitted questions that I didn't get to, I didn't ask all my questions. But thank you to the panel, they did a great job. We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight Roundtable podcast. If you have comments or suggestions, please send them to info at njspotlight.com. Recording and post-production services for this podcast provided by State Broadcast News, a division of the Lubetkin Media Companies based in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.